Welcome to the Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, I speak with Associate Professor of American Studies Tim Marr. In our conversation, Professor Marr discusses his recent course on American monuments and how Herman Melville shaped his academic career. Yeah, so how's your semester going? Semester's going wonderful. Uh, I've got two good classes. One of them is a larger undergraduate lecture class, and the other is a graduate interdisciplinary research methods class. So I've got both ends of the spectrum, and I'm learning a lot. I'm trying to remember. You were talking to me about one of the classes that you were teaching. Oh, it was on um, memorials? Yeah, is that right? this course is called Myth and History and American Memory. And it's about um, how moments of history get recirculated across time for different purposes to benefit different people. And other stories don't get remembered at all, Uh and they get forgotten. And there's a whole dynamic contestation going on as to what becomes history and what challenges that history. uh, Do you have a good good, uh, forgotten, what would you call that, a forgotten myth or... or yeah, well, some are forgotten and some are never understood because of the limits of certain paradigms. So yeah. in today's class, for example, I was looking at the creation of Mount Rushmore, which is a way of monumentalizing colossal, in colossal form right. the founding fathers. But what, what the students don't realize and what's fascinating is from a Lakota perspective, that very mountain wasn't called Mount Rushmore. It was called Pahasapa, which was also the name of the Black Hills where it's located when it was translated. Pahasapa is actually the place where creation was founded. This oh. is the holy center, almost in a tectonic way, that this mountain came up and right. created being. So to, so to actually uh, inscribe on their sacred mountain the faces of the white individuals responsible for the taking of their lands is probably the ultimate profanity. And students right. have never seen it from that perspective. Yeah, when you yeah. do, you never look at it the same. So these students uh, yeah. learn how to think about cultural memory. And every site they see now, they ask, you know, who's benefiting from this memory? Why is it created in this form? Mm-hmm. Um, who's behind it? How has it changed over time? And they can't look at things like Silent Sam innocently anymore. Right. Uh, because they realize that it's a statement. It's a politi- every monument is a political statement in the moment in which it was enunciated, that changes over time for different audiences. And mm-hmm. I love opening students' eyes to the dynamism of history as it successively moves through a series of present moments to the present and yeah. makes uh, matters today. Is this class for majors in American studies? Yeah, so this class started, uh, I started teaching it when I came here in, uh, in the early 2000s. And it was a research seminar, 25 students, and they would each choose their side of memory and teach oh, okay. me yeah. by their research, and they would present the last third of the class. And then when we admitted graduate students, we uh, needed positions for TAs. So I grew this into a lecture class. And then last year I moved it from American Studies 384 to American Studies 102, and oh, now okay. it's one of the possibilities of a required introductory course, because I think it really works that way. We cover the gamut of history, and it gets them to think in creative ways. It isn't, it's historicist, but not historical. Right. What are your favorite moments in the classroom? My favorite moment has been in an Apples class. I can state this clearly, because 
Can you explain what Apple yeah. is? Yeah, and Apple's class is a service learning class, and it was a new paradigm that I learned from getting involved in the Apple's program, and I'm, I'm now on the advisory committee for public service, and I'm really interested in this this dimension of education. So in this class, it's called a course called Tobacco in America. I haven't taught it in about five years, and I'm teaching it again in the fall. And the students in there do 30 hours of engagement in the community as an integral part of the curriculum. Right. And in a course like this, they don't go to one community partner. I've had students who are children of executives in Winston-Salem, and I can't send them to tobacco cessation programs for their service learning. They might give tours at, uh, at Duke Homestead or another way of engaging. So there's, a, there's an ambit of a, a whole spectrum of attitudes towards tobacco. But these students are out there. Some are with farmers on the week, spending a whole weekend getting their hours in. Some are um, doing internet research in the medical school on buying tobacco and seeing if mm-hmm. You have to be a minor if you can get away with it. Okay. If you're not there, I find different ways that tobacco works in the broader community and plug them in and they get engaged. And since their experiences are very diverse when they come back to the classroom, they're speaking from experience, but they're speaking from experience that others in the class haven't had. So my favorite moment was one day when I sometimes start the class and I say, are there any reports from the field? Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, this student in the back of the class was – said, yeah, I do, and started talking about their experience on with their community partner, very different from anyone else's. And the student next to me actually turned – she turned her um, chair this. totally around and, uh, and was actually looking at the person while they, while they spoke because that person was speaking out of personal experience. Mm, yeah. It wasn't just cerebral or conceptual. It was coming out of an experience that they had in this class only because they were in the class that offered a value – that got their, not only got their attention but made them turn around. So moments like that, I think the moments I like in the classroom most and a lot of my research seminars are where they are required to choose a topic in the larger field. Last fall, I taught a class on captivity in American cultural okay. definition. Mm-hmm. And they have to choose a situation of captivity and a case, research it, and that becomes an integral part of the curriculum of the class. So the, about a third of the class is them presenting on the situations of captivity that they were fascinated with. And I don't map that out. I require them to look inside and say, what matters yeah, to you? Yeah. And I learn so much when, they, when their voice becomes the voice of authority, and I train them to look into these mm-hmm. fields, and it, uh, and it magnifies the voices in the classroom and gives them authority, and, uh, and I learn a lot. So the, I, like it when, I like it when I learn a lot. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your your research, what you do outside of the classroom, the research you do, and, and what you focus on primarily? Yeah. I was a high school teacher. I taught U.S. history and, and literature. And I taught in Pakistan for three years. And that's where I was really born as an academic because I started to think about the United States from an outside perspective, particularly the place of Muslims in America and uh, – the, uh, the image of Muslims in American cultural imagination was very different than the people I was encountering and teaching in Pakistan. So I got intrigued by how do you bring together what apparently are incommensurate worlds of Amer- American Islam and um, uh, tell the story of that. Uh, I mean, basically, the Americas are the world that is not Islam. You have the right. M- Moors in North Africa and the Moros. Mm-hmm. in the southern Philippines, and it covers the entire hemisphere 
that's not American. And in fact, the Americas were discovered by trying to do an end run around the Islamic right, world. Right. There aren't uh, in, indigenous Muslim populations for a long time in the United States. Suriname has the most Muslims. So I've got, I got interested in, uh, uh, in this became an early American project because Islam, the Ottoman Empire, was a empire that was shrinking the same way that the American Empire was growing. And it was, in a sense, to use some of the uh, demeaning vocabulary, it was from American evangelical perspectives, the evil empire of its age. Right. And uh, Americans globalized themselves by defining themselves against that Islam. Uh, America, in some ways, the promises of American culture were what they thought was Islam wasn't. Yeah. Uh, and so my advisor said, you know, there's no Muslims in early America. You're, what are you doing, you know? Uh, and uh, I extracted all kinds of images of Islam from different archives, like temperance rhetoric. You look at temperance newspapers, and alcohol is an Arabic word. Right, yeah. And Muslims don't drink. So the, yeah. there's a whole conspiracy there somewhere, right, okay? Right, right. Uh, and, uh, and it was all over temperance literature uh-huh. in the early uh, – in the antebellum period. So I wrote a book um, about uh, how Islam figured – the difference if Islam was processed through Orientalism in yeah. early American thinking, but also how the Islamic world became a way that Americans uh, globalized themselves through that difference. Okay. Yeah, and that was my original project, and I've continued to be con- interested in American Islam. Do you still focus on that? Those early that nineteenth century depictions of that, or have you looked at more contemporary models? Or what? yeah, I've moved on. Um, that problem be- that that project began as a Herman Melville project. Oh, okay, okay. I was teaching Moby Dick in Pakistan, mm-hmm. and Queequeg has a Ramadan, and Ishmael is the forebear of the Arabs. And oh yeah, that's right. Who, uh, takes yeah. Isaac's place in mm-hmm. the cosmogony of Muslims. Yes. And uh, so I started look, reading this text the way that my Muslim students did and was uh, interested in okay. how Melville read that. So this book was trying to explain that this wasn't just Melville. Melville was drawing upon all kinds of cultural resources. Right. And I think uh, I knew at that point of a, a historical moment that I didn't get to in that project that I've wor- been working on for a long time now. And that is when the United States colonized the Philippines. Mm-hmm. They took them over from Spain. The southern islands of the Philippines, Mindanao and Sulu, are populated by Muslims. The oh, Spanish okay. called them Moros, like right. the Moors, because they were Spain. Yes. And the Spanish never really conquered some of these groups of Moros. And when the United States took over, they had a Moro problem, they called it, of how do you conquer and then pacify and then civilize uh, a, a pre-modern population of Asian Muslims that didn't know who Americans were and that had never been conquered by the Spanish. So it yeah. created an enormously fascinating contact zone. So when did, when did Islam come into that section of the Philippines? It came uh, very early across migrations from Arabia across the Indian Ocean. Oh, so during that first wave when they were – when they were sweeping through. This is where India and uh, okay. Malaysia okay. and right. it is the furthest east that Islam went through that trans-Indian Ocean diaspora. Uh, okay. So there's a whole different story there. America came trans-Pacifically yes. and these two cultures mapped onto each other and confronted themselves in the southern Philippines. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling the history of that contact zone. The United States developed an incredibly developed imperial bureaucracy. They had to build the roads and the public works and the education system. Mm-hmm the biggest imperial bureaucracy outside the continent of the United States. And it was with Muslims, about a, beginning about a, a third of a million 
Moros who were U.S. national subjects but not citizens. And this, uh, this has fallen off the maps. Yeah. Falls what, off a what lot language do they speak? They speak a series of local languages. For okay. example, on the island of um, Holo, they, uh, they speak uh, a, a language called Tausig. Uh-huh. And it is a, a Malay language, but it's written in Arabic script. Oh, wow. I'm um, also always doing a Herman Melville project. Oh, really? Uh, 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 I'm a Melvillian. Okay. And, uh, and Melville's taught me more than any other thinker. Uh, How so? Melville lived his life as a writer and ingeniously threw himself into writing through every existential dilemma he was going through, but found ingenious ways to embed it in narrative. And reading that, he, because he was so present in his thinking, when you read Melville, he teaches you as a philosopher. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he also teaches you about living in the 19th century. So he's a living interlocutor that exposes me to a different time and a, a deep form of thinking that is enormously and continuously relevant uh, to what it means to be human. Yeah. So everyone knows the, the novel Moby Dick by Melville. What's another text that you would uh, recommend to, to folks that are trying to enter into that, that Mev- Melvillian space? <laughs> I could uh, enlist a number of opportunities, yeah. but I think oh. most people don't know that for most of Melville's writing life, he was a poet. Okay. And he wrote one of the longest poems in the English language called Clarel, a pilgrimage in, a poem in pilgrimage in the Holy Land. It is 18,000 lines long. And uh, it is a compendium of human thought, comparative thought, uh, at the level of Moby Dick in its profundity in okay. a very different way yeah. that brings together all kinds of figures in the Holy Land and deals with the, the uh, diverse multiplicities of religious consciousness and the changes of uh, biblical scholarship to scriptural dogma and plays it all out in metric form for 18,000 lines. That's why people don't read it, but they're missing one of the most amazing meditations uh, on on human religious history that any American has ever written. I heard that somewhere that you go to, there's the Melville Society where they read Moby Dick and there's this like marathon of Moby Dick. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm involved now with five Melvillians as part of what's called the Melville Cultural Society Project. About, uh, well, over a decade ago, looked for places to affiliate with, and we established a relationship with the New Bedford Whaling Museum in Massachusetts, which is right across the harbor from where Melville went out on the accushionate on the journey that would lead to Moby Dick in writing. It's a wonderful collaboration. Over the years, we've had conferences and panels, and uh, and they had established um, over 20 years now a 25-hour reading of Moby Dick that takes place the first weekend in January, which is when Melville went out on the Oh, uh, okay. It starts on Saturday at noon, goes until Sunday about noon, a little after, and readers from all around the country, it's streamed, we have, it happens in different languages, and the Cultural Project supports this. It's only one of the things that we support. We have uh, scholars' discussions in the art gallery mm-hmm. for people that want to bring up any question whatever about Moby Dick. Yeah. And we had 40 in a circle That's uh, awesome. there uh, <laughs> um, uh, in January. Uh, we do something called Stump the Scholars where okay. there's three of us on each time, uh, on each side, the clams or the cods or whatever uh, uh, division Melville has in Moby Dick. We, we have a different name mm-hmm. each year. And the audience comes up with questions about Moby Dick as arcane as they can imagine that they try to stump us. 
And if they stump us, they get a pin or a shirt. Or, and it's astounding what six Melvillians can dredge up from a collective unconsciousness <laughs> and collaboration. I think it stops the audience yeah. too. And the yeah, most recent um, uh, evolution of this relationship is that the Melville Society Cultural Project and and the New Bedford Whaling Museum got a, a National Humanity Endowment for the Humanities Summer Institute grant. Oh, that's for great. A two-week workshop in June for 25 teachers from around the country. The deadline is tomorrow, and I'm, I've gotten 15 applications today. We have about 70 applications now oh, wow. uh, from all around the country. Uh, and it's, uh, I'm, I'm directing it on behalf of the cultural project. But they're coming for two weeks, and we're going to read Moby Dick. We have scholars coming in. Mm-hmm. We're going to do field trips in the through the museums. We're going to Nantucket. We're going to Mystic. We're taking a bus out to Arrowhead where Melville, in western Massachusetts where Melville wrote Moby Dick. And we're basically going to be in a crew on the Pequot exploring yeah. Moby Dick for two weeks. And these teachers are hungry for this yeah. kind of intellectual uh, engagement great. after being in the classrooms all, all day, every day, all year. And I'm really looking forward to that. In fact, it was a similar NEH seminar it was a seminar on Moby Dick in 1989 at Santa Barbara with Giles Gunn that turned me away from high school teaching and back to the academy. Oh, wow. And I'm delighted to go back many years later and, uh, and offer one to high school teachers because it meant so much to yeah. me and changed my career. That's great. We asked this question of everyone we interview. What's a book that changed your life? I've talked about Melville, but, you know, I've got, I got to go to – I, I, I've got to go to Melville. Let's see. Um, it's okay. Well, the book that the book that changed my my, my life mostly is Moby Dick because uh, I was assigned it in college, and I actually went to school only only about twenty five miles from where Melville wrote the book. I didn't read it as an undergraduate, and my professor didn't open up that experiential dimension that was right there. I didn't teach Moby Dick until I was teaching high school. And when I went to Pakistan, this was before you could order books online, I went down to the library in the basement of the school to see what books were there that I could teach. And there happened to be a copy of Moby Dick there. And I taught it in my honors American literature classes and my American literature classes to Pakistanis. When you teach, you read differently. You have to get your head around things to be able to transmit it in some ways to others and be open to questions. And it blew my mind thinking about Moby Dick and what a global text it was and what kind of individual wrote this book. Uh, where did it come from? How did it become brought to the center of the American canon when Ishmael was an outcast as Moby Dick was when Melville itself, himself wrote it? And it really changed my way of being because my Muslim Pakistani students noticed this rhetoric about Islam in Moby Dick that got me thinking a, an innovative angle, an outside perspective on American literature that brought me back to graduate school and, and allowed me into graduate school because I knew what I wanted to study when I applied. First time I applied to graduate school, I didn't get in anywhere because I, I just wanted to learn. Uh, after reading Moby Dick and getting that angle, um, I knew what I wanted to study, and it changed my life. And I'm so grateful for this NEH seminar, the teacher who allowed me to read Moby Dick and helped me get into graduate school. And Melville's been a constant companion, interlocutor, inspiring philosopher, artist ever since. Well, thank you very much for your time. (laughs) I really appreciate it. Okay, very good. (laughs) Very good. I have to confess I've never read Moby Dick. I know. (laughs) 
Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.